everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we are diving into fin whale waters, metaphorically. Plus a whale tale from San Diego. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Before we actually jump into our topic for today, uh, we wanted to take a moment just to thank all of our listeners, so all of you, for listening to us and supporting us. We have been getting some statistics from Apple Podcasts and have just been completely blown away by how far-flung our listenership is. Uh, We've said before on the podcast that every time we get a comment or a review, it really just is like the greatest thing that happens (laughs) to us in the day. And it lights up our group text that we have going on at all times. And it's kind of all that we can think about. And it just makes, it brings the biggest smile to our eyes and, and really warms the cockles of our hearts. But we had no idea that uh, we were being listened to really and truly all over the globe. In fact, apparently, we're number one in nature podcasts in Singapore. So hello. I wish I knew how how to speak the local language, but I don't. So I'm just going to say hi because we've always been in English. And so hopefully that still works for you. But it's been really, it's been really humbling and really amazing to, to watch those statistics come in and just to see uh, where you all are listening to us from. Mm-hmm. So as always, the invitation is open to all of our listeners. We would love to hear from you. And especially no matter where you're listening to us from, we would love to to hear what made you find our podcast and, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. how do you enjoy listening to us, especially in other countries. It's so cool. So just thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. It uh, is why we do the podcast. And yeah. now, mm-hmm. speaking of the podcast, we can start. So let's give some love to the second largest animal on the planet, Today's episode is all about fin whales. Hooray! So, fin whales, or finback whales, if you're one of those people, I don't really know. Check out our naming of this month, because we tackle the many names of the fin whale. Hooray! So, fin whales, um, the largest known, grows to 27.3 meters, or about 90 feet long, with a maximum average length of 25.9 meters, which is 85 feet, and a maximum recorded weight of 74 tons. And a newborn measures six to six and a half meters in length and weighs about 1,800 kilograms or 4,000 pounds. They big. Yes. <laughs> big babies. Quite big. They are long and slender and they are colored sort of a brownish gray with a paler underneath side, which is pretty typical of lots of marine mammals. They have distinctly tall blows. Their blows can reach a height of six meters or 20 feet or even more. So that's cool for seeing them from afar. And unsurprisingly, they have very prominent dorsal fins. In addition to their prominent dorsal fins, they have a unique pattern of asymmetrical coloration. Uh, The left side of their head is dark gray, but the right side has a complex pattern of contrasting light and dark markings. And the crazy part of this is that nobody really knows why. There's no widely accepted hypothesis. I think there's lots of guesses, but there's no widely accepted hypothesis that explains this asymmetry. They just are sharply asymmetrical um, left to right, which is very unusual, Mm -hmm. unlike the asymmetrical top to bottom, which is very common. My favorite of the hypotheses out there is that it has to do with like herding fish 
that mm. is like kind of like fish flashers. And so it's kind of I just picture like Phantom of the Opera style yeah, yeah, yeah. mask covering <laughs> one side of a fin whale's face, just being like boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, scare the fish on one side. Oh man, we need a Disney movie. Oh, I love it. Someday. Um, fin whales are found in all of the major oceans of the world, from polar to tropical waters. They are absent in the very, very polar regions, so you don't often see fin whales in the like full Arctic Circle or down at right along the coastline of Antarctica and they're also rarely seen right around the equator so their highest population density occurs in temperate and cool waters sort of you know your your typical mid latitude on each hemisphere area but they can travel through all oceans and these are baleen whales like their big sisters the Blue whales, so their food consists of small schooling fish, squid, and crustaceans, including copepods and krill. Just like everybody else that size. <laughs> so in terms of how many fin whales there are, um, the fin whale was heavily hunted during the 20th century, and so as a result, it is currently uh, listed as an endangered species. Current global population estimates range from less than 100,000 to maybe 119,000 individuals. To give us an idea of how many there used to be, over 725,000 fin whales were reportedly taken from just the southern hemisphere between 1905 and 1976. As of 1997, only 38,000, specifically in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, recovery of the overall population size of the Southern subspecies, it will hit less than 50% of that pre-whaling state by 2100 due to the heavier impacts of whaling. Uh, whaling went on longer and was like just more, more prevalent in the Southern Hemisphere. And then there's also been slower recovery rates. Those numbers are... Yeah, mind-blowing. Yeah, like I, mm -hmm. it's... You, I can't. I know that's a long period of time from 1905 to 1976, and I also yes. know not that long though. It's no, exactly <laughs> 70 years. Um, and we have talked about whaling, and just you know, when you look at kind of uh, just an overarching number of whales, regardless of species, that were hunted during the heyday of whaling, it's it is exceptionally hard to wrap your brain around that many multitudes of whales. Yeah, and those numbers are fairly accurate um, from my experience of looking at um, whaling records because they were taken from like the commercial records of like how many they sold. So yeah, nobody was paying you for whales that you didn't actually have though to talk about another marine creature for a moment that we all love but we don't run a podcast about however it's probably on people's minds because this month was shark week um, and in particular when we are recording this podcast is just after shark week has has finished um it's also kind of crazy to think like to me the idea of basically three quarters of a million fin whales being hunted in 70 years is insane and truly 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 insane and yet that's the estimate of the number of sharks almost annually that are killed so let's stop killing the animals in the ocean indeed but to be fair this is one species and that shark number is true all species all species so. true 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 but still but yay so fun yeah on great to podcast happier topics <laughs> happier more confusing topics that yes. infuriate me but seem to <laughs> delight our listenership by how infuriated i become 
Are there different subspecies of fin whale? Well, some people would say yes. It's apparently impossible for us to talk about any species of cetacean without talking about speciation. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are two agreed upon subspecies and then to make matters more complicated as they always are when it comes to taxonomy there's a third potential subspecies we'll get it <laughs> so the two agreed upon subspecies are the northern fin whale which is only found in the north atlantic more on that in a moment and then the southern fin whale which is in the southern hemisphere all over the southern hemisphere. So for those of you who find yourself on either side of the Pacific and you're like, well, I've seen a fin whale here in the Pacific. What kind of fin whale is that? You're the third who knows unyet, yet unnamed subspecies. That's who you're looking at. So most experts do consider that the fin whales of the North Pacific are a third unnamed subspecies. The three groups mix rarely at most, and there have been some biological studies of genetics to show that the North Pacific is likely to be determined uh, a distinct subspecies. But as of right now, the North Pacific population is classified as part of the northern fin whale, which is Balanoptra, Physalis, Physalis, but as I mentioned earlier, this is considered to likely be the species name or subspecies name that'll be assigned to only the North Atlantic whenever they come up with another species name, for, subspecies name for the North Pacific. And then the southern subspecies is Balanoptra physalis occupius. In addition to these subspecies, there are distinct populations within subspecies, which we see in many, many cetaceans. So maybe they're not distinct in terms of genetics, but they, they likely will become that way if things kind of keep progressing for millions of years as species go. Um, in particular, the two sort of most distinct populations are found in the Mediterranean and in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And one really interesting fully published article, which we always love to share, and you can read the whole article for free, is looking at the St. Lawrence population in particular, and it suggests that there are only between 300 and 350 individuals in this population. And weirdly, their numbers have not increased, which is not good, but also not significantly decreased, which is good. So just weirdly stayed stable in a very unstable environment. The Gulf of St. Lawrence is hugely over polluted and there's tons of commercial vessel traffic through there so it's it's a strange fact that their numbers have sort of stayed stable since the large-scale surveys done in that area in both 1974 and 1997. I mean it's good that I think in the consideration of that environment it's good that they've stayed stable rather than declined. Yeah I wonder when whaling stopped in that area though I bet it was a lot earlier than 1974. Yeah definitely. So aside from whaling which is now thankfully less of an issue the fin whales do have quite a lot of threats towards them. The International Whaling Commission issued a moratorium on commercial hunting of this whales, but Iceland and Japan have resumed hunting. They are also hunted by Greenlanders under the IWC Aboriginal Subsistence Whaling Provisions. Since the, the cessation of commercial whaling, one of the most perversive threats to fin whales is ship strikes. One study found that a third of all fin whale strandings appeared to have evolved ship strikes, and just a couple of months ago, an Australian naval destroyer docked uh, with two dead fin whales on its bow, uh, which is incredibly upsetting. Yeah, and gives you a scope of how big some of those ships are out there, if they could have 
to fin whales and not know it. Yeah, I remember when a ship came into the docks here, into the harbor a few years ago, probably more than a few now because I don't understand time. Um, <laughs> and it's 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 insane. It's really, really crazy to think that these ships are... A lot of people think like, how can you not notice that? And the truth is, you know, there's, there's no really one way to say or not whether the ship could tell that it happened like likely yeah. if you yeah. strike something that large you do feel it if you're on the ship even though the ships are so huge but you the ships are so huge there's also nothing they can do about it at that point in time yeah the the damage has been done and so that's why obviously continued work by numerous ports of call all over the world to work on regulating shipping speeds looking at lots of different ways that we can try and prevent large vessel strikes for all cetaceans but most notably fin whales are definitely the hardest hit oh i did that was an un unintentional pun uh, important for looking at research yeah absolutely okay so let's talk a little bit about how blue whales and fin whales are connected Blue whales are obviously larger, not hugely larger, or not substantially larger, sort of, um, we've said that fin whales are about 27 meters long-ish max, and blue whales are sort of in the 30-ish mm-hmm. meter length. Yeah. So, substantially bigger, but not, like, drastically. Like, it would be, you'd be hard to tell at a glance just by the length which you were looking, which one you were looking at. In terms of genetics, they are fairly closely related. Uh, It's been compared to the difference between a gorilla and a human, and they have a common ancestor as of about three and a half million years ago. So pretty close, but not that close. But it turns out they are close enough to have hybrid individuals. So um, unsure if these hybrids are viable um, in terms of the hybrids then reproduce to make hybrid hybrids. Mm. Um, but they, there are hybrid individuals between blue and fin whales with characteristics of both. And they're known to occur relatively frequently in both the North Atlantic and the North Pacific. Uh, so frequent, in fact, that a DNA profile of a sampling of whale meat in a Japanese market found evidence of blue fin hybrids. So common enough that we can sample for it in a pretty small sample size. Yeah, there's one that uh, comes to Dana Wharf a lot. Um, we see photos of and its name is Flu, which yeah. is <laughs> fantastic. <funny>. Yeah. <laughs> we sort of wanted to round off our little introduction to fin whales here with two of the really cool ongoing research projects looking at fin whale songs and just one particular population of fin whales. So like other whales, fin whales have been recorded making long, loud, low-frequency sounds, and when all of those sounds come together in a predictable pattern, they are thought to sing. So we have knowledge of fin whale songs. Their vocalizations, both of fin whales and blue whales, are the lowest frequency sounds made by any animal. With fin whales, it is thought to be most, if not all, males, similar to humpbacks that are the ones that are singing. And there has been a lot of research looking at in sort of different geographic regions, the songs are stable with small modifications, but very distinctly different from the songs sung in other geographic locations. So there seems to be at least a lot of similarity to what we already know about humpback whale songs in the fin whale songs, but the research is nowhere near as well studied as it is with humpbacks, so lots still to discover. But one of the things that I think is most interesting about fin whale vocalization research is that 
well, yeah, we shared this as kind of, I think it was a fun flipper fact, actually, a number of episodes ago. But it bears repeating because of this crazy study <laughs> that's going on. When fin whales were first recorded by U.S. biologists, the biologists did not realize that they were listening to fin whale vocals at all, whether it was songs or just any kind of vocal. They had actually no idea that it was produced by an animal. The biologists believed they were listening to ge geological noise, so something like the movement of tectonic plates. And then it took them a while, but they finally realized, oh, no, that's actually a fin whale making that noise. And now, because we've been able to see that fin whale songs can penetrate over 2,500 meters or about 8,200 feet below the sea floor, fin whale songs are actually being used not just by fin whale biologists, but by seismologists to use their song waves to assist in underwater surveys. Because fin whale calls are extremely abundant and available globally in all of the world's oceans, they may be used to complement seismic studies and actually be used instead of conventional air gun surveys to help map the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> so ridiculous. Science! Science! But like, how awesome! is that, that this, like, naturally occurring phenomenon, which probably has some significance to fin whales, though we don't know what it is, can be adapted, sorry, can be adopted by humans to learn more about the ocean floor, as well as hopefully more about the particular animal making the noise, but especially about the ocean floor that has nothing to do with fin whales. And in fact, it's better for the ocean because we don't have to do air gun surveys. It's crazy cool. It has no impact on the fin whales either. Like it's a passive use of something they're doing already. And then not only that, but then, yeah, we're not adding more ocean noise to be able to study things which would affect not just fin whales, but any acoustic animals. Yeah. Unfortunately, I could not find a publicly available complete article looking at this seismic study, but I did. we will include in the show notes the abstract to one of the most recent, it was published just a couple of months ago, articles. So if you are a university student or you have otherwise access to reading articles from journals and you don't have to pay for it, then I highly encourage you to look up the study from Science Magazine. The other project that I came across in researching for this episode that I just wanted to shout out, because as we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast, we recognize our biases as English-speaking Western scientists, um, especially being based in Canada. I was overjoyed to find an English-translated website from a Spanish research organization called the Edmacatub Association, who is running a project called the Fin Whale Project. So over 200 fin whales migrate annually and very predictably along the east coast of Spain. So this association has been running the Fin Whale Project along the Catalan coast since 2013, and it has the double objective of increasing their knowledge about the presence of these animals, as well as encouraging their preservation through both working with local government authorities, as well as just public awareness. And they are doing amazing work with during these migrations. So they're doing everything from photo identification catalogs of fin whales to photogrammetry, looking at 
sort of the same thing that we think of when we think of photogrammetry and, and drones looking at body composition, potentially even being able to tell if a southern resident killer whale is pregnant or not here in our local waters. And they're doing plankton sampling too, looking at sort of dietary structure. So you can read all about their publications, all about their research at the Fin Whale Project website that we'll include in our show notes. And I was especially excited to share that because it is not a North American run project. Um, however, it is available in an English translation and also original Spanish if you click on the other part of the website. Yeah, and we actually have an amazing story from them from 2014, question mark, um, with an incredible video that is our top viewed video on YouTube. Um, oh, here it is. Yep. Fin whales and striped dolphins. So definitely check that out. All right. I think that's all I wanted to say about fin whales. Was there anything either of you wanted to add about fin whales? Um, I did want to say one thing. I wasn't sure if we were going to go into it, but the coloration on the right-hand side is what they use to identify individuals. I'll, they do use, they use flukes as well, but it is one of the other ways. Harder to get a picture of, though. Yes, definitely. Uh, big whales don't get out of the water very much. Yeah, and when they do, they don't show you your their face very much. Tricky, tricky whales. I like them. I like fin whales because obviously we all love blue whales. We all love the biggest of something or the smallest or, or whatever. But Yeah, the somethingest. The somethingest, yeah. That's a good way to put it. And I'm glad that we were able to give the fin whales some love today because they're always they're always the runner up. The bridesmaid, not the bride. No. They are the most asymmetric. Ooh. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> That'll go on their trading card. <laughs> I don't know about, like, spotted dolphins or something. Yeah, true. True, true. They're the most asymmetric of baleen whales there that we, we know go. of. <laughs> 99% sure. <laughs> we never get to make a declarative statement on this podcast. No. Well, with that in mind, I think it's time for... Do you know what it's time for? It's time for Fun Flipper Fact. Today's Fun Flipper Fact comes to us from one of our patrons, Bill. Bill asks, do different orca groups have different languages and how do they communicate with each other? Okay, so excellent question, Bill. Complicated answer. We've touched on orca languages or orca communication, orca dialects in the podcast a couple of times in the past, but we've sort of always given a surface to just below the surface reading of it. And since this is the subject of your Patreon produced question, I'm going to dive a little bit deeper. But first of all, I need to get some terminology clear because the terminology when we're talking about orcas in general can be really complicated and can get very confusing very quickly and the terminology around communication even more so. So when actually so let me just say that everything that I'm going to talk about when it comes to answering your question Bill is specific to resident orcas the ecotype residents uh, the southern and northern communities found in the Pacific Northwest, because that is the group that we know by far the most when it comes to dialects and when it comes to communication. And so that's the basis I'm going to be answering this question on. There has been some really fantastic research done on dialects for 
big orcas here in the Pacific Northwest, as well as orcas in Russia uh, and orcas in a couple of other places of the world, but nowhere near as extensive as what we know here. So just keep that in mind as well, listeners, that everything I am about to say for the remainder of this fun flipper fact is specific to the resident ecotype in the Pacific Northwest. And let's break down the different subcategories of resident. So as many of you know, a family unit in a resident community is known as a matriline. So that is the oldest, typically, uh, the typically the oldest living female in that family tree and all of her descendants when it comes to the residents. So a matriline is a family unit. A pod in a resident community is a larger unit made up of one or more matrilines that are frequently seen traveling together and are very likely closely related to each other. So matriline is a family tree. A pod is a number of closely related family trees who also spend a lot of time together. And then a clan is a group of pods, so we're getting progressively bigger here, that share similar calls or dialects, and which usually indicates that they probably shared a common ancestor, they are more closely related than other members of other clans, but nowhere near as closely related as a pod is, and definitely not as closely related as a matriline. So that's the terminology, matriline, closely related, all family tree, pod, bunch of closely related but maybe not 100% sure blood relation, but they travel together. Matrilines and clan, a lot of pods that speak similarly to each other and likely shared a common ancestor a long time ago. Then when it comes to language around communication and definitions, orcas, this is for all orcas, I will say, orcas communicate through clicks, calls, and whistles. And when they put these together, it forms a unique language or dialect for that group. Notice I say group, I'm not getting into pods, matrilines, clans here for just a second. (laughs) And what is distinct is that each group's vocalizations or each group's language with big quotation marks around it does not seem to be used by another group. So I'll break that down a little more clearly in a minute. The usage of language and dialect is tricky, but generally speaking, you can think of it like this. A pod all speaks the same dialect. So all the matrilines in that pod are all speaking the same dialect. A clan is made up of similar dialects from all of the pods in the clan. And within all of those dialects, there are many overlapping calls. And then an ecotype, so in this case, the residents, language, again, big quotation marks, is made up of multiple dialects, some of which can sound very different from each other but it's still more closely related acoustically than that of another ecotype. So because this can be confusing, I'm going to use the actual community of the Southern and Northern residents here in the Pacific Northwest and break it down for you. So in the Pacific Northwest, when we think about the ecotype of the residents, there is the Southern residents made up of three pods, J, K, and L. And then there's the northern residents, made up of tons of pods, as we've talked about, um, but really three clans, 
A clan, G clan, and R clan. Now, the three pods in the Southern Resident community, all J, K, and L pod members, only form one clan. So that's J clan. I know this is a bit confusing because there's J pod and J clan, but this is the naming structure we have to go with here. <laughs> so in the Southern Residents, J, K, and L pods each does have their own distinct dialect. J-Pod has its own dialect, K-Pod has its own dialect, L-Pod has its own dialect, but all of the members of that pod, and certainly all of the members of the matrilines within that pod, are using the same calls. And then J-Clan, which combines J, K, and L-Pod, shares a number of very similar calls. So when they come together to form a superpod, they can communicate with each other and socialize and mate and do all the fun things that superpod members do together. When we're talking about the three clans in the northern resident community, each of those clans is made up of multiple pods speaking similar dialects to each other, just like the JK and L pods of J clan. But this really shows where you can really hear the distinctness of the dialects is if you listen to recordings from each of these four clans. So from J clan, A clan, G clan, and R clan, one right after the other, you'll be able to hear how distinct they are from each other. And then if you really want to boggle your mind, go and immediately listen to a recording of Biggs orcas who are found in the same waters. And it is completely different, like completely different. So uh, I don't have recordings that are sort of my own property that I can insert into the podcast here. Um, so, But YouTube is full of Orca recordings and we will try and find links or you can do your own search so that you can do that. Listen to J-Clan, A-Clan, G-Clan, R-Clan. You'll be able to hear similar but very distinct calls between those different clans and then go listen to some bigs and it's like what even is that's a, just a different animal if you want to try and use human language comparison though it's not a perfect comparison <laughs> i will put that right out there um, but if that helps you bill think of dialects between pods like the different accents of the same human language. So if we think of J, K, and L pod members who are all speaking J clan dialect, we could think of J clan dialect being the English language and J pod's accent of the J clan dialect is Canadian English and K pod's dialect or accent of the J clan dialect is English speaking is England English and L pods accent of the J clan dialect is Australian English. Not a perfect comparison, but it might help. Then think of the different clan dialects like distinct but related human languages. So J clan, A clan, G clan, R clan, they're all speaking resident, but it's kind of like Italian, Spanish, and French. They're very similar languages. There is some overlap, but then there's also like a lot that's not the same. <laughs> a lot that's very, very, very different. And then the language of a different ecotype, like resident compared to bigs, is just a completely unrelated human language, like English to Japanese. 
One thing that I wanted to share as well in answering this question is that Dr. John Ford is probably one of the best published researchers in the Pacific Northwest. He was one of the first people to look at distinctness between clan vocalizations, between pod vocalizations for resident communities. And one of the things that I thought was most interesting looking at his research is that he is the one who proved that dialects are passed down from generation to generation, one of the foundations of orcas being a species with culture. And he speculated that groups that share these calls probably descended from a common ancestor and that the sort of phylogenetic link between dialects and pod has been able to estimate how long it takes dialects to differentiate from each other on an evolutionary scale. And he thinks that it probably requires centuries, if not longer, for a distinct new dialogue, or sorry, for a distinct new dialect to emerge. The implication of which is that some of these dialects of J-Clan, R-Clan, for example, could actually be thousands of years old, which is really cool and a great way to end our fun flipper fact. So if you would like to produce your own fun flipper fact, ask a question for us to dig and dive deeply into, you can do so by becoming a patron at the whale level like Bill has done. And Bill, thank you so much for your question. How do you become a patron? Well, we are on a website called Patreon, which is a crowdfunding site where you can support creators like us for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, we have a bunch of different rewards at different levels of money uh, per month that you can give us, and you get different rewards for different tiers, surprisingly. So we have stuff like produce your own fun flipper fact at the $10 a month level. You can vote in fun, fun flipper fact polls when we have them, and that is at the $1 level. We got have discounts on our merch, get thank you cards in the mail, all sorts of exciting stuff. Um, and you can check all of those levels out on our Patreon. And most importantly, you will have our eternal gratitude. Yeah! We love our patrons. It is so incredibly valuable to us if you take the time to become a patron because we do everything here at Whale Tales as a labor of love. Off the side, off the side, off the side, off the side of our desks and couches and beds sometimes. So <laughs> we are so, so grateful to everyone who has the opportunity um, and the ability to become one of our patrons at any level. But if you can't, we also totally understand. And there are lots of other things that you can do to support the work that we do here at Whale Tales. Uh, one of the best things that you can do is to leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on because that will not only make our days but it will also help other people find us and then we can spread the cetacean nerdery all around the world now it's time for a whale tale of course and we've got a whale tale that's about a fin whale hooray um from Kristen, who's a whale and wildlife photographer in san diego it's very exciting to hear her fin whale story growing up in new england whale watching meant that Humpbacks were our main target species. Stillwagon Bank is literally covered in them in the summer months as they feed. And so seeing anything else, any other larger baleen whales, is kind of a special rare treat. Fin whales especially have a reputation there of being very elusive and a little skittish of boats. And it's understandable. It's a very busy area. There's a lot of fishing activity. There's a lot of shipping activity. So seeing them on a whale watch was like a specter. 
and you really understood how they got their nickname of the Greyhound of the Sea. You'd see them, maybe a spout, two if you were lucky, and then suddenly they were gone, not to be seen again. So when I moved out to San Diego, and fin whales are a year-round occurrence here, it was pretty exciting to see how curious they were, to see that they move slower around boats, and to see that they sort kind of wanted us to interact with them. Not not like humpbacks, right? Humpbacks are super social. They will mug your boat and make you not be able to go anywhere for 30 minutes or something. Fin whales, though, are kind of special out here. Uh, they have crossed on occasion with blue whales. There's a well-known one in Santa Barbara named Flu. Uh, and when we get nutrient upwellings of cold water bringing bait fish and plankton into the area, every whale watch is like fin whale soup. It's very cool to just be surrounded by fin whales. This past spring, San Diego had an absolutely incredible gathering of fin whales during this nutrient upwelling recently, and you couldn't go out without seeing them. It was pretty amazing. And then two were unfortunately struck by a ship. Um, the Australian Navy was birthing at Naval Base San Diego, and a mom and calf pair popped up underneath their hull. And it seemed like at that point, the whales just scrammed. Uh, they were spending a lot of time really close to shore and then were moving out much, much farther where a lot of the big whale watching boats couldn't get them. And it was a sad, sad occurrence to hear about this and to unfortunately see all the news coverage about it, especially as someone who loves whales and who is working on a volunteer project about how we can hopefully prevent that from happening, um, as well as, you know, quieting our ships when they're out there. But I decided that I was going to take a couple friends out on Memorial Day, we're going to see what we were going to see, and hopefully we didn't get skunked. So we went out on San Diego Whale Watch on the privateer, and it took most of the morning, but we finally found a fin whale. Very exciting. It was a sub-adult, still pretty big, and definitely feeding out on the nine-mile bank. This whale had zero issues with us watching it. There was a rib in the area that was also watching it. He or she just did these languid feeding circles on top of the bank. The bank rises up to about 500 feet of water, and surrounding it is deep pelagic drop-off. So just observing the whale with San Diego in the background, even though it was a very hazy, socked in marine gloomy morning, was really special. And I was really happy that my friends who had never been on a whale watch before got to see the second largest marine mammal to swim in our waters and probably to be the second largest animal on the planet, similar to the blue whales taking first place. So it was really awesome. I love seeing them. They are so cool. Um, and it's always a joy to witness them in the area and to see them just being whales and feeding and doing what they do. And especially with having the beautiful Point Loma sunset cliffs 
and La Jolla beach houses in the background. It was really, really special. Thank you so much, Kristen. She's got a couple of other stories on our website, uh, including some false killer whales and a blue whale, and she sees some amazing stuff. We did try to get her to um, summon beaked whales for so she would have a beaked whale story for us for our beaked whale podcast, but sadly, those powers have not fully come to completion yet. <laughs> so maybe next year she'll be able to summon species so that we can have very well-timed stories for our podcast episodes. <laughs> We're going to get roped into like Marvel phase 17. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> whale summoning species power. We also have oh, 20 other fin whale stories on our website. You can just click on the fin whale category on our left-hand menu. So cool. All right. Well, it's almost the end of our podcast, but before we go, we wanted to leave you with some fun tips that you can use to help your life be a little more environmentally friendly. It is July, which means it's Plastic Free July, which is a great initiative and a terrible name because you're never <laughs> going to be plastic free, but it's about a goal rather than, or it's about like, it's about just improving your relationship around disposable single use plastic. And also maybe a good time to focus on some more um, systemic changes such as encourage, like reducing shipping, um, which has a huge plastic impact and um, maybe writing to your local government representative if there is an issue locally local to you, um, especially if it's like on a bigger scale than just banning plastic bags. If there's something that you think that your local government could do to help support small businesses that are reducing their plastic waste or other things like that, rather than just focusing on individual consumer action. Mm -hmm. That's my tip. Yeah, that's a good tip. Um, this year, I haven't actually started yet, but my mom bought me some of those laundry soap strips. Ooh, nice. Ooh. Um, which she's been using, and she loves them. So I'm very excited to start, but I do still have like half a big bottle of Tide because I only do one load of laundry a week. <laughs> but they're very good, and I'm excited to try, which is a great new thing to yeah. do. Because it's like, whatever, I don't even know, 20 strips, and you use maybe half or maybe a little bit less because my washing machines are old and don't rinse. So that's going to be like, I don't even know, almost a year <laughs> worth of laundry. And it's just like in a cardboard envelope. And that's cool because then not only are you like having less plastic, but you're also supporting a business that is getting out of the business of shipping their products in plastic. Yeah, there's so many cool things that like, they're definitely popping up now because it is Plastic Free July. But there's always going to be places locally and not that have these kinds of things. So just... Um, Think about what you are throwing out and what, if there's anything that you can switch, even just one, like something like that, like that's a year. And my tip is looking for the people that you can share the ideas about Plastic Free July with that are in unexpected places. So for example, my son and I both had a dentist appointment last week and you know, at the end of the dentist appointment, you get your potential little mini toothpaste, your little new toothbrush, 
it's always a plastic toothbrush. Um, and our dentist gives these to us in a plastic bag on top of mm. all of the other yep. single use plastic. Well, not okay, toothbrushes are not single use, but still. No. <laughs> yeah. Very much not single use. Um, and I just had a conversation, just an honest conversation with the hygienist before uh, she gave my son and I our little packages and said, you know, one of the things that we're really trying to do as a family is cut down our plastic use uh, for my son, who is just about to turn three, I do appreciate getting a new toothbrush from him because it was a very big moment and it had Olaf on it. Mm-hmm. And it was very oh exciting for him. It was just the, the only toothbrush that matters now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I don't need another toothbrush for myself. I've been investing in sustainable toothbrushes. So, you know, letting her know that I didn't need it. You can always turn those things down. You don't have to take them. Her feelings weren't going to be hurt by me not taking it. (laughs) But more so, instead of just saying, no, I don't need the toothbrush, by actually having the conversation with her about why I didn't need it, um, and especially even for the toothbrush that we were going to take for my son, why we didn't need the plastic bag to go along with it, she had no idea. She'd never heard of Plastic Free July. And she's like, you know, that's, it, it was just kind of that that light bulb moment. Like, I actually have no idea why we give these in these plastic bags because every mm. parent that comes in here has like a diaper bag or a backpack or a purse with them with lots of pockets that you can put the toothpaste and, and floss and toothbrush in. And so she was like, you know what, just, you know, because we've talked today, I'm going to ask people if they want mm. the plastic bag or not. And yeah. Not just make the assumption that they want nice. it. So even if there's just, you know, three other people that go to the dentist this month and say, yeah, no, I don't need the bag. That's awesome. That's awesome. Fun fact, once I got a little travel floss from my dentist and threw it in my backpack and didn't find it for many years. <laughs> and then you had floss. Then well, I had floss. Yeah, that's always a good use for the, like, if let's say you have a sustainable toothbrush or like a um, electric toothbrush with like, um, there's just the disposable heads or something. But a good use of the extra toothbrush you get is like, rather than buying another extra toothbrush to like mm. put in your travel stuff is to use the stuff that you get from the dentist yep. like I think a huge part of Plastic for July is like changing the things that you have to buy anyways so like your laundry soap mm-hmm. or your toothbrush but also not buying new things just because they're plastic free yeah yeah that's also true yeah it's the, one of those things like you said with shipping like not ordering fancy glass floss like I've mm-hmm. looked into that mm-hmm. only was from New Zealand because that's just so like astronomically more wasteful mm-hmm. than just buying floss exactly so you know what else those toothbrushes are great for if you are going to accept your toothbrush from the dentist, but you don't need it for your teeth? Mm. Cleaning and or crafting. Yes. Yes. True fact. Well, I use my old toothbrushes to clean my sandals. So there we go. Hopefully, if you have other really you know fun ideas of what you've been doing to learn and share from Plastic Free July... We would love to hear about them, as we would also love to hear your thoughts on this or any episode. So feel free to visit our website, whale-tales.org, where you can find links to our various social media handles so you can drop us a line about whatever you'd like. You can also tweet at us directly. I am FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H. And Nicole is Nick F. Can. C-A-N-N. If you head to our website, you can subscribe to our podcast, check out our merchandise, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read over 1,000 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. And of course, if you have seen a cetacean like Kristen has, we would love to add your story to our library. So click the share link on our site, contact us on social media, whale tales Org, 
or email us a voice memo just like Kristen to tell us all about your incredible encounter. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us wherever you are in the world. We will be back on the last Wednesday of next month with another exciting episode of Prehistoric Proportions. Thanks, everybody. And as always, have a really great day.